0: Today's episode of Morning Meeting is brought to you in partnership with Tiffany & Company.
1: Tiffany, wow. You mean the home of the fabled blue box?
0: I do. And you know what else, Michael?
1: What's that, Ashley?
0: This Valentine's Day, Tiffany lets you dial up on diamonds with the Tiffany T1 collection. As the evolution of the brand's iconic T motif, the T1 collection represents courage, confidence, and self-empowerment. Good morning. It's Saturday, February 6th, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. Thank goodness. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail.
1: I'm Michael Haney, one of the deputy editors here at Airmail. Ashley, what's going on? It's February already. It's like Groundhog Day, right? We're right back. We're right back where we were. Almost a year ago, except it's really been Groundhog Day, right?
0: My iPhone reminded me that a year ago at this time, I was in Los Angeles. Like, you know, we were having a party at Freeze to celebrate Alex Prager's film. And I got this great dress at the Webster from Chloe and these amazing Gucci shoes. And I was feeling so good about life. Fast forward a year, I've been wearing the same Rachel Comey jeans for 11 months straight. And, uh, you know, it's miserable and snowing outside. So there you go.
1: I think it's snowing outside, but pleasant. As we're looking out my window, sitting in my wife's dressing room, because it's the quietest room in the house, it's almost as quiet, I think, as the snow on the city outside there.
0: Okay, I'd like to remind our listeners, like three weeks ago, you said you don't have room for a Peloton in your apartment. Now your wife has a dressing room. Explain that, Michael. Mm, (laughs)
1: I'll wait for my attorney. (laughs)
0: Okay. All right, well, we have a great episode today. We have Fran Leibowitz on, Michael. That's a pretty exciting development. Uh, We love Fran. She's an FOG, friend of Graydon. And uh, a voice in our universe for such a long time. And of course, she's got this hot show on Netflix, Pretend It's a City, directed by Martin Scorsese. And we're going to talk to her about all of that and more. So in addition to Fran, we'll probably talk a bit about Amanda Knox. We've got an, God, it's a scandalous issue this week, Michael. We've got Amanda Knox. We have Cassie David.
1: We have have Gen Zers behaving badly on vacations. COVID, COVID escapes.
0: I never get tired of that. All right, Michael, I have some bad news for you. What? Unfortunately, once again, you were not named to the International Best dress List.
1: I'm, I'm I got I got to pack up my microphone.
0: I'm no, leave. don't don't leave, don't leave, don't leave. <laughs> we'll continue to keep petitioning. I have a full PR team on it. We'll get you there next year. But for now
1: I don't know what I'm paying you and this team for if I'm not getting on this list. I mean, <laughs> you guys is like I'm the biggest sucker in the world, but oh, okay, so why don't you tell me who made our International Best dress List this
0: year? The 2020 edition of the International Best Dress List has finally been released, and this was actually the 80th anniversary of the IBDL, which is, a, a, as Amy Fine Collins writes in this week's issue, it's a milestone for an institution whose imminent extinction has been prophesized for decades. So the IBDL committee has decided to commemorate its long history by spotlighting 20 women from our annals, all embodiments of enduring excellence. So we've got you know, some characters we know and love on here, Babe Paley, Marlena Dietrich, Grace Kelly, Diana Vreeland, Gloria Vanderbilt, Diana Ross, Luna Horn. But we also have some contemporary style setters on this list. We have Lady Gaga and Rihanna, and we have a new inductee to the IBTL: 23-year-old National Youth Poet Laureate Amanda Gorman who says, it's my way to lean into the history that came before me and all the people supporting me. That's how she talks about fashion. And as you know, Michael, she has been um, supported by Prada. They, Prada has been dressing her for quite some time now, and she wore this fantastic yellow coat at the inauguration, as well as a ring that was gifted to her by Oprah Winfrey in a gold vermeil birdcage, which was a nod to fellow inaugural poet Maya Angelou. So it's a very dynamic and fun list. We're fortunate enough that we have one of our inductees on the IBDL here with us, Fran Leibovitz, who is always wearing something, you know, Anderson and Shepard jacket, check. Denim, check, check. Loafers, check, check. Uh, what do you think about her look,
1: Michael? She's the embodiment of the uniform, right? And by uniform, people like it. we, the creatives, often you find a thing that you love and you you do it to perfection. So, yeah.
0: Alright, well, let's get Fran on to tell us the secrets of her style and her enduring success. <laughs> So Fran, uh, how is life for the newest Netflix sensation?
2: (laughs) This is something I've never experienced before. So I really can't answer that because it's never happened to me before. And it's never happened to anyone in this way, except all the people who had stuff come out during the pandemic.
0: Uh, You know, the first question that came to me when I was watching the doc was, how did you meet Marty? And when was it? You guys clearly have such great chemistry.
2: You know, neither Marty nor I remember where we met or when we met. And so I just say, I assume it was a party because where else would I have met him? You know, obviously I got a lot more parties than Marty's gone to because that's why Marty's made so many movies and I've written so few books.
1: The doc, as you sort of frame it here, obviously was made in the before times, before the pandemic. And yet I think some people's impressions would be like, Fran would actually enjoy a pandemic because he doesn't have to be around people then, right? But is is, is that true?
2: It is not true because... <laughs> It is not true that I do not like people as a group in that way. I mean, what is true is that I don't want to live with another person. Um, And it is true that, of course, there are many people I do not like. And it is true that I don't like, you know, to be smashed up against a million people. But, no, I have not enjoyed the pandemic. I have friends who have enjoyed it, I have to say. I have a a French friend who said to me, uh, who was locked down in Paris at the beginning where you really couldn't leave your house, you know, by, there was a law against it. Um, She said, you know, I realize I never liked people to begin with. I have not had that experience. I mean, there is, I do not like this. Uh, There are certain things that I've gotten to do that I never thought I'd get to do, which is lie on the sofa and read for 10 months. But, you know, that is counterbalanced by the fact that, I have to eat in this house where the food is terrible because I hate to cook and I'm a terrible cook. So I have not really enjoyed the pandemic.
1: You've lived in New York for a long time. You've seen a lot of iterations and waves of New York, outdoor dining, people people living in Hoovervilles on the street and eating in them. Have you partaken in that?
2: I have the second they opened restaurants outside, I was at them. And this is from someone who would never eat outside before. You know, when people ate outside before the pandemic, it was, of course, in the warm weather. I always refused to do this. I was astonished that anyone would like to do this. I would always say, are you kidding? Who wants to eat outside in New York? It's noisy. It's hot, which it used to be, because the only inside in the hot weather. It's filthy. Um, Let's go inside into the nice air-conditioned restaurant. But I, I would rather eat outside than eat here. And I have been eating outside, including I'm eating outside tonight. So that there is no weather, too hot or too cold, that is not a more pleasant place to eat than my apartment. I have definitely been eating outside. I did say to someone, I think today, you know, here's a phrase I hope we never hear again once this is over, which is indoor dining. Because truthfully, that was dining. You know, I mean, dining was indoors. You know, eating outdoors was a picnic. You know, so that uh, I'd be very happy to see the end of it. I know that people enjoy it. And if they want to keep it, keep it. I'm not in charge of it. But, you know, uh, I will not be eating outside as soon as you're allowed to eat inside. And by that, I do not mean if they let, you know, some people eat inside now, because I'm not going to eat inside until I have had both vaccinations. And I believe that most other people have had both vaccinations.
0: Fran, um, most of us are keeping in touch with our friends and family over Zoom, right? So has this pandemic at all tempted you to get a cell phone?
2: Not at all. I can't think of a worse time to have one than now. Not at all. What I have definitely noticed is that I have numerous friends who have said for the last 10 years, I don't use the phone anymore. I hate the phone. I'd much rather text someone or email them. These are the people I now cannot get off the phone.
0: So your landline's ringing off the hook.
2: Because people, I mean, especially during the, you know, most stringent part of the lockdown. Yes. I mean, I was on the, I mean, I like the telephone. You know, of course, I have a, a landline because, you know, one of the reasons I have it is not just I don't have a cell phone, but it works, unlike the cell phones. You know, when two people are on landlines, no one ever says, I'm sorry, I didn't hear what you said, or I'm losing you. Because the one thing about the landlines is they work.
0: You're coming through very clear, I have to say. Of course. sound great. So, Fran, given this Netflix popularity, do you have any anonymity at all left when you're walking the streets of New York, as you so famously do?
2: Well, I'm wearing a mask now.
0: You got the Anderson and Shepard jacket and the denim. Like, you're a very recognizable figure.
2: Well, I'm surprised that people do recognize me with the mask, not everybody because I don't recognize close friends with their masks on. I've stood on corners waiting to meet people for dinner and have someone come over and start talking to me and I think they're a stranger, and all of a sudden they'll go, friend, it's so-and-so, the person I'm meeting for dinner. So some people have a better ability to recognize people with masks than I do, but I don't have a great ability to do that.
1: Well, how do you deal with anti-maskers?
2: I try to get as far away from people who not wearing a mask as possible. And I feel angry at every person who's not wearing a mask because it seems to me the assumption is, I don't like to wear a mask. You must like to wear a mask. Everyone hates wearing masks. They're horrible. No one likes wearing them. So I feel like I wear it. You should wear it. I, I saw a guy once in the street where I kept myself from yelling at him, you have white hair, that should be your clue, wear a mask. You know, but I, I must say that when I'm like walking, you know, in the street and you have to stop, you know, for the traffic light, um, if I'm standing next to someone who's not wearing a mask, I move away from them. What kind of masks do you wear, Fran? I wear these paper ones, whatever they're called, you know, they, they're blue on one side, white on the other side. Um, that's what I wear. I'm not washing masks. I have enough chores.
0: Michael, is this the right time to break it to Fran that she has once again been named to the International Best Dress List for 2020?
1: 2021, or 20, or 2020, in 2021.
0: Brent, did you know that? Despite the masks, despite the fact that you haven't gone to a single party in the last year, you still made it
2: on the best dress list. I know that because Amy Frank Collins called me.
0: Uh, okay. Damn it, Michael. We've
2: been we,
0: we thought we were going to we had a scoop and we just lost it.
2: The lust Amy.
0: Does, does it surprise you, Fran? Uh, do you feel like this is your due? What's your reaction to being named?
2: I guess I was surprised. I mean, it's a little hard to be surprised in an era where we have a worldwide pandemic and, you know, an assault on the Capitol. I would have to say, in context of surprising things, it was a minor surprise.
0: So when you get your second vaccine and when life emerges again, is there anything at all in your life you want to do differently? Do you have any post-pandemic
2: resolutions? I don't. I, I don't make resolutions, you know, hence I don't have to feel like I've broken them.
1: All right. Well, you, But you said a moment ago, you know, in regards to outdoor dining, you're not in charge of it. You've lived in New York a long time. So if you were in charge of vaccinating 8 million people in this city right now, how, how would you do it?
2: Well, first of all, as far as I can tell, the major problem with vaccines is that Donald Trump didn't order enough. And there seems to be an incredible ignorance throughout the country as to, A, how many people live in the country, and then how many people live in New York City. So if the mayor says, you know, I'm going to give 100,000 vaccines, I think, well, that's adorable. But there are eight and a half million people who live here. So I'm aware that no one under 16 gets the vaccine, but I am not aware of what percentage of the population that is. Among the many horrible things Trump did, giving the responsibility of this to states is idiotic. And then if you have, at the same time, Donald Trump and Bill de Blasio, so you have this evil, incompetent person, and then this simply just incompetent person, you know, it becomes incredibly difficult.
0: So who has your vote for mayor, Fran? Do you have a preferred candidate so far? You know, I really don't.
2: I mean, as you are aware, there are like 150,000 people running for mayor. There are, you know, there are a couple that I really, they're out of the question, and there are a couple I kind of like, but I haven't decided yet, and I'm... I'm certain there must be some running who I'm not even aware of.
1: I don't know why you don't run for mayor. I mean, because you, like, you could, I'm sure, come up with a very good platform in about two minutes.
2: Well, one of the reasons I don't, there's two reasons I don't run for mayor. One is I couldn't win this room and I'm alone. And two, as I know I've said before, one of the bad things about being mayor of New York is that it starts early in the morning. So I would be the mayor if they would let me, if they would split the job in two, and I could be the night mayor. Uh, in every way, I promise you, I would be the nightmare. But it is the second hardest job in the country. And the most important thing for the mayor of New York and the president of the United States is, and I know you're not supposed to say this because it's very un- un-American, but the most important thing is you have to be very smart. You have to be very smart because it is a very hard job. And, you know, I suppose de Blasio still has his uh, fans, but no one would accuse him of being very smart.
0: Yeah. Friend, you know, if the newspapers are to be believed, we're seeing a mass exodus of people leaving the city. What's your take on all of that? How do you think the city's going to be reshaped?
1: What do you think of those
2: people? Well, the people who left, you know, the city like right away or and who left the city for good right away. I'm not talking about people who, you know, left the city and went to, you know, another house they might own or went to, you know, some friend's house in the country because they were afraid. I, I know someone who left because his wife was eight months pregnant and she was afraid to have the baby here. I don't blame her. You know, to have a baby at the height of COVID must have been a nightmare. As soon as they had the baby and the babies is all right, then they came back. So, uh, you know, I think that the people who left because they, you know, people give all these reasons why they left, you know, for good. Uh, and certainly the papers were full of that for a long time. And this boom in, you know, suburban housing prices and, you know, uh, really what I thought about it was, You know, people would say things like, to me, well, we have three children in, you know, a two-bedroom apartment. You know, that does seem horrible to me. That seems horrible to me if there's no pandemic, I have to say. That simply seems horrible to me. But Obviously, it wasn't horrible to them then. Uh, People would say, well, you know, now that we're in the suburbs, you know, it's so much better. We have a backyard. And I thought, well... If you think a backyard is a good substitute for New York, have a nice life. Uh, I mean, New York, of course, you know, has uh, been very hard hit by the pandemic, and it certainly was worse than it is now. Here's the thing New York changes every second. It always has. There's not a square foot of New York that is the same as when I first came here, and that was true within six months of being here, you know, so that, you know, changes the essence of a city. You know, if you want a place that has pretty much been the same my entire life, I give you Westchester. So if that's where you want to live, fine. I have nothing against it. But people like that are not the people who make the city anyway. So it doesn't matter. I mean, the upside of this, you know, is that the real estate prices in New York City have fallen so precipitously that this is an opportunity if you are young and you couldn't possibly think about living here for from the point of affordability. This is your chance. And I would really suggest you take it now because here is one thing I know for sure. It will not stay like this. So it would be a good thing for New York. So if New York loses a bunch of bankers and gets a bunch of uh, interesting you know, kids, great.
0: All right, Fran, thank you again. And congratulations on this great documentary. It's really uh, given us a lot to enjoy during lockdown. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Today's episode of Morning Meeting is brought to you in partnership with Tiffany & Company.
1: Tiffany. Wow. How cool, Ashley. Hmm. Now, if I only had a reason to go to Tiffany right now.
0: Michael, you do. Valentine's Day is next weekend. Aren't what? It is! And not only that, but when you go to Tiffany, be sure you discover the T1 collection. Exquisitely designed by master craftspeople. Tiffany T1 jewelry features head-turning diamonds set by hand into a complex honeycomb pattern, resulting in incredible radiance, texture, and dimension. Find love with Tiffany this Valentine's Day. All right, so now that we've successfully moved on from fashion, Michael, shall we talk about the consequences that are waiting for those who dare to flee COVID in the name of travel and fun.
1: Yes, those who maybe they they want to look uh, by doing bad.
0: Ooh. Ooh. So Elena Claverino, one of our writers at Airmail, it's an illuminating bit of reporting about what's happening to all of these youngs who are fleeing their homes and going somewhere sexier, more interesting. Mm. Uh, in the name of, of trying to keep life going on despite COVID. And it turns out that the fun and games are not here to stay.
1: Turns out, you know, sometimes the bill comes due. Woo! So she's got this story about, you know, the youngs and a group of them who back around New Year's Eve, like, you know, guy, there's got to be somewhere we can go. Like, how can I possibly stay home or stay in my parents' house? I'm used to getting on a plane and going somewhere. So she found a group of... um about 150, 20, 30-year-olds who decided to rent a bunch of homes in the desert outside of Marrakesh for the holiday because Asia was shut, Africa, uh, the U.S. was shut, Europe was shut, Africa was kind of the last resort. So they all end up there in Marrakesh. But they started partying, created a lot of ruckus, a lot of noise. People call the police. The police come, take their passports, scare the hell out of them. It's basically like Midnight Express in Marrakesh for millennials. That's my poster.
0: God, I'll be so glad when we're done with COVID and we can stop talking about these people.
1: <laughs> you can't stop talking about these people. They're they're the they're the youngs.
0: I probably shouldn't moralize on this because I've tried not to moralize when it comes to people making personal decisions during this time because I think we're all winging it in some ways. But there is a little bit of a dancing on the cliff of a volcano vibe going on with some of these people.
1: There's a vignette in here. There is a 24 year old New Yorker flying home to see his parents in London, right? He says, oh, and then I'm on the plane. And while I'm on the plane, I get an email saying that I tested positive while I was on the plane. So, well, of course, numb nuts, like, what do you think was going to happen?
0: Yeah, I saw that. It's just another reason why I'm, like, terribly nervous to get on a plane, uh, especially with these new variants coming up. But-
1: yeah, hi. I, I'm in seat 4B uh, uh, and you're in 4A and you're shedding virus all over me. Thanks. I'll just have the vegetarian dish. Thanks very much. <laughs> oh,
0: boy. Speaking speaking of young people behaving badly, this brings us to Amanda Knox. Michael, tell us about this piece. You edited this story.
1: This is a piece by uh, Rosie Kinchin, who, if you all remember Amanda Knox, she was the young American who uh, was arrested and uh, convicted in Italy of murdering her roommate named Meredith Kircher. This was back in 2007. It was a very controversial trial. The conviction was later overturned and she was found innocent by the Italian courts. But it's a fascinating story, and and Kitchen got a lot of time speaking with Knox, who's back in America, about how even to this day, she is still perceived as guilty and viewed by many people as guilty when in fact that's not the case and um you know it's Malcolm Gladwell who's quoted in the piece or cited in the piece you know he wrote a book talking talking to strangers came out a couple years ago and he says you know Kircher was murdered by Rudy Gude the the guy who's and yet the reason why Knox found herself in the firing line Gladwell argues is because she was misread by the investigators in other words he says if you believe that the way a stranger looks and acts is a reliable clue to the way they feel, you're going to make mistakes. And Amanda Knox, her problem, as it were, was that she is the innocent person who acts guilty. And that was really what was sort of, uh, so now Rosie Kinchin sits down with her, talks to her about what she felt at the time and what she's learned since then and how her how she's rebuilt her life. So fascinating look at one of the most scandalous trials and convictions and also how even our perceptions are shaped uh, of a person's innocence or, or guilt by what the press says about them.
0: God, the media is always to blame, always.
1: Yeah, I mean, but it's interesting, you know, because you look back at this case, and and as as Rosie points out, like you know, it was it was it was sensationalized from the start, not just like oh, it's young Americans uh, on holiday. In the in 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 Italy and getting into trouble and drinking and then like someone ends up murdered, but you know they even sort of like scandalized her sex life or built tried to build that into like you know she was Foxy Noxy and she was uh, going on with the young guy and by the way as she Rosie points on the piece Foxy Noxy was a nickname given to her by her soccer team she ran like a fox everything just gets blown out of proportion in in, in some of these stories
0: yeah and it's a reminder too that. The media, the public, we're always looking for some kind of a drama. You know, we're always searching for a narrative that makes sense, that we can wrap our heads around, when the truth is often so much stickier and elusive. Another reason, Michael, why you really should watch The Investigation on HBO, my favorite true crime show.
1: I know. I'm, I've got it on my list. I've, I've got to get through Lupin first.
0: I started that this weekend. So good.
1: You know, uh, Scott Jolly, who's our production guy here at Airmail. He was telling me how much because he heard the podcast last week. He said, he said he, he loves the show. I said, what do you love about it? He said, you know what it is? It's Batman without the cape, and that's really what it is. He's like, he's like Bruce Wayne, millionaire Bruce Wayne. He's got this mysterious life, no one knows what it is, and he's crusading to sort of avenge a, 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 a wrong in his past.
0: Ooh, thank you, Scott. We got to get Scott on the show. Speaking of scandal. There's a fascinating new book out about Robert Maxwell. Who was Robert Maxwell? I mean, because there also, it says something about me that when someone says Robert Maxwell, I immediately think of the fashion photographer, but there's another Robert Maxwell.
1: Yes, we've got a great piece this week, a uh, great book review of a book that's sort of rocking the UK right now. And and it's called Fall, the Mysterious Life and Death of Robert Maxwell, Britain's most notorious media baron. Now, who is Robert Maxwell, you ask? Oh, he's the father of a woman named Ghislaine Maxwell, who is basically in jail right now uh, because of her association with who, Ashley?
0: Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey
1: Epstein, exactly. So yeah, this is a fantastic book by John Preston,
0: So this guy came from another century, basically. I mean, not really, but he was one of those like rash and brash media types. He was a a famous newspaper editor. He had a few friends and an awful lot of enemies. And he was very mysterious, too. He's described by John Sweeney, who reviewed the book for us. And John also is producing a podcast on Ghislaine Maxwell called Hunting Ghislaine that is Excellent. Worth a listen. Anyways, John writes, you know, he was a big, fat bully. He owned the Daily Mirror as well as the New York Daily News. And, you know, he humiliated those who worked for him. He sweet-talked dictators. He robbed his pensioners blind. Um, He calls him a monster. And in fact, his wife, Betty Maxwell, described him as, quote, harsh, cruel, uncompromising, dictatorial. He had a sadistic pleasure in crushing and humiliating those closest to him. Um, And he had seven surviving children. And his youngest, of course, was Ghislaine Maxwell and also his favorite. And she's currently detained in Brooklyn's Metropolitan Detention Center. Uh, She's been accused of supplying underage sex slaves to Jeffrey Epstein, She does deny the charges. Uh, But her dad died in 1991 under mysterious circumstances. And this book really goes back and treads through all of this territory, starting, you know, with his extraordinary life story. He was born very poor in a Ruthenian shtetl. He fought for the British army. He won a military cross for his courage. He shot a German mayor in cold blood because the Germans weren't surrendering quickly enough. So he sort of uh, struggled against British anti-Semitism in the 60s. Uh, and he had a famous rivalry with Rupert Murdoch. Um, and then finally, in 1991, he vanished from his super yacht, which was, of course, famously named the Lady Guillemin. And uh, you know, there are lots of re- lots of conspiracy theories going around about what actually happened to him. It's certainly a fascinating romp through the life of one of Britain's most famous captains of industry.
1: Yeah, this is like it's, he's like the sort of wealthy British media version of Jimmy Hoffa, right? It's just like, well, there's no body. Where did he go? What happened to him?
0: Well, a fascinating book to read. And I I personally have ordered it. Michael, on a reading note, an exciting literary development is that Vanessa Springora's book Consent is finally coming out in the U.S. on February 12th. Now, we wrote about this last year, Um, not because it's an excellent book, because it is, but it was released in France around this time last year. And it caused an absolute sensation because it's her memoir of being a young girl. She was I think in her early teens, uh, when she had a relationship with a much older, very famous intellectual who was not named in the book, it was an open secret that it was the French writer, Gabriel Matzneff. He was really exposed by this. Uh, He he had been, it never should have been a secret because he had written about his sexual relations with minors for decades um, in his work. But as the French often do with intellectuals, you know, because he's an artist, you get an awful lot of, of uh, leeway in terms of behavior. And this really blew the sky out of the water. And it was a huge scandal in France. I think actually the scandal overshadowed the fact that uh, Springora's book is really beautiful and, and worth a read and d- of course difficult in terms of the subject matter. But I expect a lot of buzz around that book um, in the next few weeks.
1: Wow. Okay. I'm into that.
0: Boom. Boom. I read it this weekend. I tried to stumble through the French edition last year, but I read, Julia, thank goodness, sent me the PDF of the English edition. And it's a very well paced, fascinating one. So highly recommend that.
1: What else you got for me?
0: Oof, for you? Everything. No. Okay. So, you know, on a decidedly less literary note, I have done a revisiting of Sex in the City. And I, I told Alessandra this and she looked at me like completely shocked. I'm like, why is this surprising to you? Of course. Key subject matter. No. A new Sex and the City reboot is currently uh, in production, and Sarah Jessica Parker says that it's going to reflect the pandemic and the world we live in, and it's going to be called, and just like that. So because of this, I felt the need to go back and rewatch the Sex and the City films and a couple of the last seasons of Sex and the City. Now, I loved this show when it came out because I'm a human, okay, and like everyone loves the show, what's not to love? Uh, And then my feelings on it became much more complicated as time went on. And I think when you look at it back through a post-pandemic lens, it just strikes me as incredibly shallow and myopic, you know, especially the films, which were widely criticized for being Kind of surface, right? But when you look back at these women's lives, in which they define themselves in relationship to the men in their lives, and also to their wardrobes, it just seems incredibly out of touch. The movies, in particular, are just cringeworthy now—absolutely cringeworthy. And I have to say, I tip my hat to Kim Cattrall for saying, "I'm not dealing with like—I don't care what it looks like. I don't care how many people hate me. I don't care what it does to my reputation. I'm not going to be involved." So, Kim, I tip my hat to you. I invite you to lunch. I'm not going to be watching this reboot.
1: Wow. So it's not complicated.
0: I guess it's not complicated.
1: Let's take this one and sell it. I'd like to see they get on a plane and they go for a weekend in Paris. And who do they bump in at a restaurant? Emily in Paris. And oh, then you, get, you get a mashup, right?
0: Mashup. I like the mashup.
1: Emily in Paris could take Kim Cattrall's role.
0: I mean, I've never had more respect for Kim. Yeah, em, that's a great idea. Throw Lily Collins in there.
1: Yeah. And then you get like, you know, moms and daughters would go see it then.
0: Anyway. That's my two cents for the day, Michael. I'm sorry I'm a downer on this. Please, can you recommend something?
1: Yes, I can recommend two things. One, if you want a real palate cleanser after thinking about that, I would recommend so highly, uh, we wrote about it last week, but it only came out last Friday, The Dig. The new movie with Ray Fines and Carrie Mulligan, uh, which if you if you don't know about it, this is a, based on a true story by, and a best-selling uh, novel that came out a few years ago in the UK, and it tells the incredible story of this woman. It's set in England, 1939, on the eve of of the UK plunging into World War II. There's a young mother, uh, widow with a young boy living in the English countryside and she ha- she hires this man played by Ray Fiennes to dig these ancient mounds and what they find is turns out to be basically the most valuable buried treasure ever in the British Isles. It was a 7th century Anglo-Saxon ship loaded with treasure and this movie is so beautiful uh, just because you get so much of the English countryside but it's, be- it's a beautiful small story. You want to tell something that's going to make you feel good in this moment right now and what and, and you know what what matters, which is doing the right thing, carrying yourself with dignity and teaching a next generation what values. This is a movie for you. I, I, I just think finds is terrific. Kermon's great. Even this young boy who's in it, heartbreakingly great. Couldn't recommend it more.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, if there was ever any doubt about who is the moral center of this show, I think Michael has just solidified his role.
1: And if you want to, here's my other pivot. If you want something that's a great comedy, which we, we watch the next day, if you're a fan of the Coen Brothers movies, and I know many people who listen to us are, if you remember that that movie with George Clooney, it came out about 20 years ago, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Remember that one? If you do, you do. But this was Sullivan's Travels, which is one of the great comedies made by Preston Sturgis, 1941, with Joel McRae and Veronica Lake. And you watch this movie, and even the title, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? The Coen Brothers lifted from Sullivan's Travels because the plot of this, it's set in uh, depression. Joe McCrae plays a very famous Hollywood director who wants to who makes these comedies, right? And he wants to make a real movie about people's suffering and hardships and the common man. And so he goes out on the road, tries to hitchhike and become a bomb, as they used to call them. And Veronica Lake, he meets her, long story, but great comedy. And It's, it's, you watch it and you see uh, how the Cohen brothers. Get their whole screenwriting style really from this movie if you love them you're going you're going to want to watch this movie because you see it as a touchstone all the great coinages they do the catch the sassy catchphrases they come up with their their their, their, their love of slang it's all here it's one of the great comedies I, I promise you it is 80 years old but it feels as fresh and smart and uh, as something right now and it may way many much smarter than than things right now so highly recommend that and like i say Veronica Lake is fantastic in it as well one of the great screen comedians.
0: Michael, done and done. Done and done. I have a 30 second, one more plug. Plug it away. This is Graydon's fault because he brought up Frank Sinatra to me. I had to go back and rewatch Alex Gibney's Sinatra doc from 2015, Sinatra All or Nothing at All. Okay. It's a four hour doc. It's in two parts. It's like a digest of everything you need to know about Frank Sinatra. And it's such a delight to watch. Great music, of course. Great archival material. If you missed it, you know, you might be thinking like Sinatra, do I care about him right now? Yes, you do. Absolutely. Because uh, this guy just takes you back to a different time in American history. And it's really transportive. I highly recommend.
1: As I say, it's Sinatra's world. We just live in it.
0: Yeah. As Charlton Heston said, Sinatra. A Sinatra song is a four minute movie. Done. Wow.
1: On that note, that's a mic drop.
0: Mic drop. Leave it to Charlton. All right, Michael,
1: you want to read us out? Avec plaisir. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Al Sandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which is updated every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, please be sure and subscribe on Apple Music or Spotify. And most of all, thank you for listening. Thank you to our sponsor this week, Tiffany and Company.